Hello, my name's George Eldridge, and like you, I'm stuck in isolation because of the coronavirus. Unlike you, I accidentally went into isolation with my parents, who were both completely mad and very old. This is my diary. I've called it Stuck. How to Survive Accidental Isolation. It was going to be a question of endurance. The next four to six hours would be tough. That was that. No two ways about it. But I would be brave and I would be fearsome and I would take no shit from anyone and I would come out the other side beaten, bruised, probably not bleeding, definitely insane, but nevertheless alive. I would live to tell the tale. Or at least that was the idea. Sunday lunch with your parents is always painful. It just is. Not because you don't love them. Not because they are inherently bad people, but because they're your parents. And everybody knows that there is no greater torture than being interrogated over a side of beef on a Sunday by two people who love you unconditionally and, and I'm quoting my mum here, only have your best interests at heart. To make things worse, as I sat shivering on the platform at Temple Meads, my hangover seemed to be taking on a life of its own. As most I-will-never-drink-again type hangovers do, this one began its journey to brain domination feeling more like an overzealous head massage than the traditional one-blink-and-you're-dead-thumping migraine. But now, midday, things had taken a turn for the worse. Perhaps it was the rushing and the running. I was supposed to catch the 945. Or maybe it was just the anxiety produced by the idea that I was going to have to tell them all my news, recounting in painstaking detail absolutely everything that had happened to me since Christmas. Which was nothing, by the way, except living in the library and drinking. Not at the same time, obviously, although it might make revising more interesting. But then not having any news meant that I was going to have to make it up. Hungover. In my family, fine thanks isn't a satisfactory answer to the question. So, darling, how are things? They need things. Always. They must know about the state of all things everywhere, all the time, and it's a nightmare. Whatever it was, the hangover had now found its way to my frontal lobe and was sitting smugly behind my eyes with all the sensitivity and quiet calm of a newborn baby that needs both feeding and changing. The next train to arrive at Platform 4 will be the 12.15 First Great Western service to London Paddington. Calling at... If only, I thought, as I always think, sitting on that platform, waiting for that train. Having never lived there, the capital city has always captivated me in a way nowhere else ever really has. As a kid, I didn't go there much apart from to visit the odd family friend and be dragged kicking and screaming to recitals of classical music in obscure churches and guild halls. So my London began and ended with the opening titles and closing credits of films. Richard Curtis films, basically. 
my mother has a fetish for them or perhaps she has a fetish for him. I think, like the rest of us, she probably just fancies Hugh Grant. I would watch about a boy on repeat, imagining myself as Will Freeman, the rich, good-looking bachelor character played by Hugh Grant, paying absolutely no attention whatsoever to the kid in it, the Marcus character. No, I wanted to be Hugh. Will. Driving around Islington in an Audi TT, living alone in a flat with shiny coffee machines and toasters, going out to expensive restaurants and chain-smoking and watching the Countdown omnibus. I guess I knew, in the back of my mind, that all of these things could be achieved in places other than London, but it didn't matter. To my ten-year-old self, performing menial, everyday tasks took on a fresh, edgy and exciting air of sophistication when performed in London. The famous landmarks that we all think of when we think of the city, the ones that make it the amazing place it is, are not what drew me to the big smoke. It was the fact that rubbing up alongside all those tourist attractions, world-famous monuments and ancient buildings full of important people making important decisions, were regular mortals, like me, going about their daily lives. It was the proximity of it all that I found mad. To me, it seemed like they were living on a film set, all those millions of Londoners doing their thing, drinking coffee and smoking and watching Countdown, without really registering that a mile away, in Westminster, the government was governing and the London Eye was turning and that down the road in Buckingham Palace, the Queen, as in the actual Queen, was talking to her corgis. And if that wasn't enough for them, somewhere else, probably Fulham, Hugh Grant, real-life Hugh Grant, was almost certainly having a cup of coffee too. I didn't get it. Why wasn't it blowing their minds like it was blowing mine? It bugged me. Still does. In fact, London is why I ended up going to Bristol. It's sort of the reason why I've made all the decisions I've made in my adult life so far, in a roundabout way. We have a train to catch, so I'll give you the elevator pitch. I grew up an only child in the teeniest, tiniest village in Somerset. I went to school, primary and secondary, in my local town, also preposterously small. After my A-levels, I wanted to go to drama school, but that didn't work out, so I ended up taking a gap year and teaching English as a foreign language in Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay. I'm pretty sure it's the smallest, most non-metropolitan of all of South America's metropolises. There's that word again. Small. Seems to be following me around. The reason I chose to teach English was because it was a way of having a year out without spending much money. But on top of that, if I went to Asuncion, the British Council offered to pay me almost triple what I could have earned living and working in any of the other cities in South America get away from my parents for a year and come back with more money than I had when I left. No brainer. My plan was to reapply for drama school as soon as I got back from travelling and I would need not to be in debt before I'd even got to London. RADA was the apple of my eye, although at that point I would have taken any of them. As it was, none of them were very interested in taking me. So that was that dream over. 
No acting for George. Very fucking annoying, but I'm also very over it, so let's not go there. University was my only option. I still had my heart set on London, but it quickly became apparent that my grades were not good enough for any of the colleges there. The choice was between Leeds, Exeter, Plymouth and Bristol, and despite the fact that the other three universities would have taken me a lot further away from home and so might have felt a little bit more like an adventure, Bristol seemed to me the closest to London in spirit. And so it was. I packed my bags and left for Bristol to study English. The train arrived. I got on. With, it seemed, the entirety of the rest of the student body. In my pathetic, hungover stupor, I'd failed to notice how many other people there were standing on the platform with me. It was weird. Nobody I knew was planning on leaving because of the coronavirus. Although we fully expected all our lectures and tutorials to be cancelled in a matter of days. That's exactly why I wanted to stay. No lectures, seminars, nothing. For potentially weeks. Months, some people were saying. Fucking brilliant. Where were they all going, I thought. Back home, to live with their parents? Really? Sure, most of the people on this train would be returning to London, which was fair enough, but still, didn't they just want to stay put in their uni houses with their mates and ride it out until exams were over? That's what I was going to do. Stay put, revise a smidge, get stoned with Mal and play FIFA. Rumour had it that the library was closing the following week too, and so we'd probably have absolutely no choice whatsoever but to stay inside and self-isolate in our man-den until the storm passed. Plus, man-den or not, London really didn't seem like the place to be right now. Bristol's corona figures were pretty friendly and manageable in comparison. There were only like 12 cases to London's very unmanageable and very unfriendly 700, and that number had been doubling daily, whereas Bristol seemed to have their figures under control. Or something like that. To be honest, I wasn't really sure. I hadn't been watching the news much because it was all very depressing, and so the only progress reports I had been getting on the coronavirus's crusade to take over the world were in my mother's daily text messages. Dearest Georgie. Both my mum and dad seem not to have grasped the inherent informalities of texting, and so begin all their messages like this. Lovely sunny day here. Tilly's just been and I've been out pruning all morning. Such fun to be in the garden again now that spring has sprung. How are things there? Haven't heard from you in a few days. All okay? Do please be careful, darling. You are very precious. Latest is, lots of ministers have it, and Tom Hanks, and stock markets still tumbling, and they say we're likely to go the way of Italy and Spain and France soon. Might not be more than a few days behind them. Also, don't wear a mask. Totally useless. Might even worsen your chances. And under no circumstances take ibuprofen. If you get the virus and you take it, it will exacerbate your symptoms, even though you are not in the target demo, darling, so you mustn't worry about anything. But remember, someone of your age and with your good health may not show any symptoms at all, and so you must be vigilant and responsible at all times, darling. Happy birthday twice, OK? Daddy still insisting on going into school. Can you believe it? 
even though advice from the government is that people our age should be quarantining themselves now, symptoms or no. All very worrying. We are so looking forward to seeing you on Sunday. Do tell Mal he's very welcome to come for lunch too, of course. Always. We're having beef. He does eat beef, doesn't he? Love you very much, gorgeous boy. Send me a signal. And then, wait for it. Wait for it. Ding! Oh, darling, one more thing. Phoebe also very welcome to come and have lunch too. I am so silly forgetting. Sorry, silly me. We would so love to meet her. And after all these months, I'm beginning to think we embarrass you, darling. Wink emoji. Anyway, let me know. Can't wait. No face touching. Mummy, kiss. No, Mum. I would not be bringing Mal. Or Phoebe. Definitely not Phoebe. Not least because both my best friend and my girlfriend would still be fast asleep in bed, like all normal people are on a Sunday at one in the afternoon. But thank you for extending the invitation. And you? Embarrass me? Impossible. As the spiky bowling ball that was my hangover continued to roll around in my head, so the train steadily rolled towards home. I thought of Phoebe and Mal and everybody else that had been at Robbie's the night before, all tucked up, oblivious to the horrible, ugly war zone that was the outside world. The same dreadful war zone I, at that very moment, was having to navigate. I seethed with jealousy, thinking of Phoebe sleeping soundly in my bed, in my room, with my t-shirt on and already felt cross about the inevitable text I would receive when she woke up, telling me that she missed me, and that she wished I was still lying next to her, and to come here and make me pancakes, fatty. Well, why didn't you stop me? You could have. You could have insisted. You could have decided that this morning would be the morning you were going to tell me about that strange, chronic health condition you have, the one that makes you shrivel up and die if you don't stay in bed with your boyfriend and he doesn't make you pancakes for breakfast. You could have told me and called them and so sorry, Mr and Mrs Eldridge, but George can't make it home for lunch today and that would have been enough. You could have, Phoebes. You could have, but you didn't, I thought to myself. I wish to God that I could sit down. The only inch of available space I could find on the train seemed to be a crack between the toilet door and a girl, my age, a student, who was wearing disposable rubber gloves and a face mask. On the mask was written in big red letters, Fuck Boris, save our NHS. Well, yeah, I thought, but why on a face mask? And why now? She caught me reading the slogan and looked at me with an expression of utter disgust. It was weird of me, I guess, in such close proximity, but wasn't that the point? Didn't she want me to read it? For some reason, I decided that the way out of this situation would be to fake a sneeze. I crossed my eyes, raised my eyebrows, started bobbing my head up and down erratically and... <gasps> <gasps> like a complete fucking idiot, <gasps> Chew! pretended to sneeze. Naturally, this made matters considerably worse. The girl, not just keen to identify as a Labour Party supporter, but also especially anxious about certain killer airborne diseases flying around. 
Can you not? She said, from beneath her mask. Sorry, I said, non-confrontational. She faced away from me and turned the volume up on her airpods to full. I suppose this was in order to provide her with extra protection against me rather than the virus, but it didn't stop me from chuckling at the idea of Billie Eilish being the musical embodiment of the coronavirus vaccine. Multi-talented, I said to myself, smiling. What did you say to me? The girl whipped round to face me again. The mask was off now. What? I... How did she hear me? How did you? If you don't want to take what's happening seriously, that's your problem, she said, a bit louder than I thought was fair in a packed train. But don't mock people who are taking responsibility and who do give a shit whether people live or die. Oh, oh no, sorry, you don't... I wasn't... I was talking about Billie Eilish. Fucking hell, man! What is your problem? She shouted, with such conviction that I actually began to think that maybe I was being a dick. Yeah, um, I'm... yeah. Sorry. Again. The words dribbled out of my mouth. Pathetic. She turned around again, and I spent the rest of the journey with my head down, listening to an episode of the Adam Buxton podcast. Which was annoying in itself, because the whole encounter with the girl on the train combined with my splitting headache had really made me want to listen to Zanny by Billie Eilish and feel fucking sorry for myself. But I was too scared that if I did, everyone would hear I was listening to the same thing as her and think I was an actual criminal. Right. I thought, closing my eyes. That's more than enough embarrassment for one hangover. Be really great if the two carriages I'm currently straddling just happened to decouple right now and tragically I fell between them and got smushed into a million little bits. I waited for a minute and then opened my eyes. No such luck. As strange as it was... The encounter made me acknowledge, for the first time, how much things were changing because of the virus, and how quickly. In normal circumstances, on any normal Sunday in the southwest of England, her outburst would surely have been considered an overreaction. The people around us, witnesses to the crime, would probably have thought it a little odd for the girl in the mask to have shouted at me in the way that she did. Someone might even have said something. You know, in that completely ineffectual way English people do. For example, a token... Oh, well, there's no need for that now, is there? From the businessman in the suit opposite would have been greatly appreciated. Bit of solidarity, mate. I mean, come on. As it was, no one did anything. They behaved like it was normal for people to shout at their poor, innocent, unassuming fellow passengers. In fact, they didn't just do nothing, they did more. Or rather less than nothing. They pretended it wasn't happening at all. Now I know that to pretend to look the other way is a very English thing to do, but to actually do it, 
to not even be furtively fascinated with whatever juicy public outburst is going on right next to you in a train carriage, to not even want to look. Now that's fucking weird. Like a caveman defrosting after an ice age, I suddenly awoke to the palpable sense of fear that was currently surrounding me. All the people on this train were running away from the coronavirus. They were going somewhere else to try and hide from an invisible thing. And that's all any of them were thinking about. All any of them had time for. Where is it? Who's got it? How do I avoid it? I'd never known an atmosphere like it. I certainly hadn't felt anything like this level of unease at university. Nobody seemed to give a shit. I mean, sure, it was on the tip of everyone's tongue, but people were still making out. Mal had had a cold for the last two weeks and had become the butt of everyone's jokes, but none of us actually thought he had it. The general feeling of anxiety that had been caused by my hangover was now beginning to take on a more worrying and uncomfortable specificity. Maybe I have been an idiot, being so nonchalant about it all. Maybe Mal has got corona. Should I have been isolating from Mal? Shit! Maybe I've got it, which means Phoebe has it. Oh, God, I'm a super spreader. Fuck! The nervous thought spiral continued. I'm one of those terrible, horrible, careless people who don't think the coronavirus applies to them. I'm Vanessa Hudgens. I was now so overcome by anxiety that I suddenly needed a wee, badly. The lavatory wasn't far, but with so many people crammed into such a small space, it wasn't an easy journey. I edged as carefully and as respectfully as I could past my new friend in the mask, who glared at me from beneath it with a level of vitriol I had hitherto never experienced. Tap-danced my way past the unsupportive businessman and a number of other nervous faces until two and a half feet later, I finally arrived at the WC. It had one of those automatic doors that are impossible to open, which, of course, was closed. I began prodding at the buttons on the control panel, gormlessly, trying to open the door. A boy and his mother were stood a little to the left of it. The boy was looking up at me, eating a cheese string and sporting a vacant expression on his face. Fuck's sake, just open, I thought, now engaged in an out-and-out boxing match with the toilet door. The kid wouldn't look away. So, in all my hungover wisdom, I decided to consult him as to the status of the bog. Is there someone in there? I said to the child, immediately regretting it. The boy, who, young or not, was obviously comparatively dull-witted, just carried on gawping and deconstructing his cheese string with military precision. Come here, Fred, come on. Don't talk to the strange man. The mother pulled him in towards her, actually turning him inwards so that he wouldn't be able to see me. Brilliant, I thought. Not only am I a corona superspreader, but also now a train pedo. Finally, the door opened. I leapt inside. It closed automatically behind me. Things seemed a bit less complicated in here. 
I was half expecting a VR Lou. Good afternoon, ladies and germs. This is your train manager speaking. It is my pleasure to inform you that we are now on approach to lovely Lockage. Just a couple of minutes to go now. Lockage will be our next station stop. I hadn't quite finished, but was getting off at Lockage and needed to hurry. I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more stressful than stopping midstream. I approached the sink with caution. It was one of those infrared sensor situations which everybody knows are wildly temperamental. If you are planning to travel on with us today, the ambassador would like to apologise, but unfortunately, the Ferrero Rocher has run out this afternoon. What the fuck was this guy on? But he is spoiling you by giving you eight coaches and 620 seats. Ours was obviously one of those extremely bored train managers who thinks it's acceptable to use the PA system to practice his stand-up comedy. Mind you, there's not many of us on the train today, is there? So stretch out, put your feet up, make yourselves comfortable. The guy actually kept the microphone on in order that we would hear him laughing at his own joke, just in case any of us had missed the fact that he was being sarcastic. Unfortunately, a trolley service of drinks and light refreshments will not be provided today, and I regret to inform you that if you are planning on using any of the toilets in standard class, the water pressure is not currently working in this part of the train. What? What do you mean, not currently working? On account of my newfound and admittedly long overdue coronavirus anxiety, I had used enough soap for a car wash, and rubbing my hands for the recommended 20 seconds had created a lather so thick that both of them were now completely white with the stuff. I shoved them underneath the tap, waving them around madly and praying that the man's water comment had been just another bad joke but nothing more than a drip was discharged. I felt the train grinding to a halt. It was too late. We were here. I punched all five buttons to open the door, which, you'll be pleased to know, decided to oblige, and jumped off the train in the nick of time. I wiped my soapy hands on my jeans and called my dad. Hey, Dad. Hello, darling. Where are you? Just arrived. How lovely. Which side did you come in on? Usual one. The upside, then. Wh which one's that, again? The upside, darling. Going east. Dad, I don't... Which way is east? Lockage Station is tiny, and only has two platforms. One goes to London, one goes to Bristol. Simple. However, if you're coming by car, the terminus can be accessed on both sides, and although nine times out of ten the train from Bristol arrives on the same platform, the one that's headed for London, there was this one time it came in on the other side, the side traditionally used by those destined for Bristol, which meant he was waiting on the wrong side. The exceptional circumstances of which so thrilled my father that it has led to us dancing this completely unnecessary little dance every time I've come home since. London side, darling. Dad, I'm on the normal side. Upside, 
Brill. I, I, it's, I can, just wait where you are. See you in a sec, sweetheart. When I came out, he was standing by his car, a Morris Minor traveller in racing green, which he has been intermittently restoring for the last 20 years, for what he proudly calls weekend cruising. Although the restoration process has yet to be completed, and so the ride is more putt than cruise at present. Hello, Georgie, he said, waving, excited. It's an odd thing about Dad. For all his 77 years on this planet, he's still more energetic Boy Scout than elder statesman. Hey, I said, with as much bright enthusiasm as my headache would allow. He gave me an enormous hug when I reached him, kissing me on the cheek. Don't tell Mum, he said, getting in the car. She's on the warpath. What do you mean? I said, sliding into the passenger seat and shutting the door. Tell her what? She says we need to be socially distant in order to stay alive, Dad said, winking. Won't let me kiss her, because she's scared she might catch the bug. Two metres, Johnny! We must be two metres apart at all times, she wails, conveniently forgetting she spends eight hours a night less than a foot away from me, snoring like a dyspeptic bullock. Ah, Mum. I sighed, placating him. But she had a point. He is old. So is she. And if anyone's really in the coronavirus firing line, it's old people. I mean, you are a target, you fool. I thought to myself. But in my experience, it's best to say as little as possible on these journeys. And not allow yourself to get tricked into engaging in a dialogue. Especially when one is operating at about 38% of optimum processing power. Everybody knows that really all one parent wants to do when in the car with their adult offspring is moan about the other parent. Your opinion isn't really welcome or necessary, however much they will goad you into imagining that it is. And anyway, you're bound to put your foot in it somehow, so my advice is to hold your wished, as they say in Scotland. Having said all that, it was quite a heavy thing to have to think about. Mum and Dad not necessarily being okay. Jesus, I thought, the anxious cogs beginning to whir again. Was I about to kill my parents? I mean, this morning, biggest fear in the world was, did condom break when me and Phoebe were having sex last night? I mean, not the best worry to have in anyone's book, but not as bad as murder. Now... No more than a few hours later, I was on my way, George, the superspreader, to infect and probably kill my aged parents over Sunday lunch. Fuck! Why did I let him hug me? Wait, did condom break last night? I got out my phone and began texting Phoebe. Hey, baby! I prayed that she would take the three exclamation marks after baby to mean, I love you so much, you are the best girlfriend in the world, I am so lucky. As opposed to, I'm having a panic attack right now. Are you pregnant? Please say you're not pregnant. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I kept writing. Hope you slept okay. Um, quick thought. No biggie. D did condom break last night? I don't think it did. Don't worry. But just checking if you remember anything like out of the ordinary. Love you. Send. I put the phone back in my pocket and then 
almost immediately retrieved it. Wish I was still in bed with you and could make you pancakes. See you later. Can't wait. Love you. Really love you. Send. I do. I really love her. But I must admit that at that moment, my motivation was good karma. Just in case Condom did break, I thought, and she is pregnant, reluctantly, and the father of her child does turn out to be guilty of unwittingly killing both parents. Jesus, what a way to come into the world. Dad in prison for double murder, and Phoebes couldn't look after the baby. She's still got a year left of uni. God, that poor child. No, no, George. Shut up. This is all in your head. You're being an insane person. Breathe. Just breathe. <sighs> all a bit mad, really, isn't it, Dad? Just came out of my mouth. Didn't know what else to say. I was praying that it had been pitched with enough intrigue that he wouldn't think I was dismissing his remark out of hand, but also enough indifference that any follow-up discussion would be discouraged. I couldn't bear to talk about the coronavirus any more. Yes, yes, tis really, isn't it? He responded cheerily. He would have gone on had it not been for the Morris's gearbox jamming and causing the old rust bucket to break out into the most infernal din. Bloody thing, come on, you can do it, old bird, Dad said supportively, stroking the old circular speedometer behind the steering wheel. You know the car can't hear you, right? I said, glum. Don't be so ridiculous, he cried, nearly inaudible above the noise the thing was making. She can hear me, all right, can't you, Murray, eh? He leaned towards the dashboard and began whispering into the central air vent as if it were an ear. Don't take any notice of horrid Georgie. He's far too nouveau to understand us, old thing. Much more of a jag man is our George. He looked over at me, grinning. Now come on, Murray, let's show him what we're made of. He put his foot down and threw himself back into the seat as if he were driving a Ferrari and started making the noise a racing car makes. I rolled my eyes and looked out of the window. Nothing happened, of course. We remained at our top speed of five miles an hour, only just making it over Lockage Look, the downs that separate the villages of Lockage and Little Lockage. Little Lockage is perched on the south side of the Look, overlooking the convergence of the rivers Froome and Avon in what's known locally as the Valley of the Morning Dove. For those listening to the audiobook version of Stuck, too lazy to read this seminal work, that's morning as in to grieve for, as opposed to morning as in before noon. I don't know whether you know what a morning dove is, but if you're imagining a bird that looks anything like a white dove, the beautiful, graceful, universal symbol of peace, think again. The morning kind is a fat, brown, exceedingly boring species of dove that does nothing but tarnish the excellent reputation of its more famous cousin. In fact, true to its name, even its song is a sort of morose warble. Needless to say, we little Lockergeans are extremely proud of our flabby, feathered friend, which... I've always thought, is yet more evidence of what a boring, small-minded place Little Lockage really is. Oog's been worming the cows this morning. Oog, French for Hugh, is the farmer at the farm across the lane from us. Gosh, what a racket those moves make. Fabulous, said Dad, 
as we wound our way past the church and the green and the village hall with its adjoining village stores, all of which, raining or not, were unusually quiet for a Sunday afternoon. Guess everyone's having lunch, I thought. My face pressed up against the foggy window pane. He was in quite a state, actually, he continued. Not sure the old girls were playing ball. Tom Ash and Victor... Who are Tom Ash and Victor? I asked, hopefully. In a village with a population of less than 300 people, new names, new faces are like gold dust. You know, Tom Ash, Victor, Oogs lads. They arrived in January to help him out on the farm. Gosh, has it been that long since you've... Well, they're Polish, you see. Two brothers, terrific guys, about your age. And they went back to Poland last week for a holiday. See, they're folks, I think. And, well, anyway, they were due back on Friday, but the Poles closed the border. Would you believe it? Couldn't get back for love nor money, poor things. Oog said they were in terrible states when they telephoned. Victor was in tears. And, and you should see this guy enormous, big, muscly. What? I interrupted, not really sure where he was going with this. What's that, love? Dad said. I gave him a sort of what-the-fuck-are-you-on-about stare. Well, he's not the sort of guy you'd expect to break down in tears, is what I mean. Not, not at all. Anyway, they're stuck there for the foreseeable, Oog says. Lucky Tomash and Victor, I thought. And with that, we got to the end of the lane and turned into Willow Tree Cottage with its little green door and its garden full of fluttering daffodils sloping down the hill to the stream, shaded by the old willow. Love it or loathe it, I was home. Darling, oh sweetheart, so good to see you. Come in, quick, out of the rain. Oh, do come in, will you, Johnny? My mum, standing in the doorway. Hi, mum, I said, getting out of the car. Quick! Quick, sweetheart, in you come, darling. How are you? Oh, gosh, Johnny, you took the Morris. Were you all right in the Morris, George, darling? John, I did ask you to take the Volvo. I did ask Daddy to collect you in the Volvo, darling. What's this? Dad said. Watch what? But he was already running towards the door, and my mother, with his arms outstretched, yawping and yelling and cooeying like some kind of deranged animal. Kiss a kiss, Annie. Oh, come on, just one. Kiss a kiss. John? John? Do not come any closer. John, to meet the official guidelines, say. And she ran back inside the house, chased by my dad. I stood there in the rain for a moment. You can do it, I told myself. This too shall pass. Just a few more hours and you'll be back on the train, hurtling towards Phoebe and Mal and life, as you have come to know and love it, will resume as normal. Could you pass the cream, Georgie? Lovely lunch, thanks, I said, passing the pot of cream. Thank you, love. Glad you enjoyed it. But I ought really to come clean. This isn't just any treacle sponge pudding. She leaned in. I knew what was coming. It's an M&S treacle sponge pudding. <laughs> yep, that's the one, I thought gritting my teeth so that it looked like I was smiling. Good one, Mum, I said. Not heard that one before. Never! Dad exclaimed, with such genuine surprise that I almost dropped my spoon. Marks and Spencer? Truly. But, well, it's just so light. Yes, is, isn't it? Not too heavy at all. 
extraordinarily airy, Dad said. Spare me, I thought. It was the same thing every single time. They have this fascination with the lightness and airiness of puddings, and they invest the topic with such weight and significance that you'd be forgiven for thinking they were discussing some deeply complicated point of philosophical theory. And the fact of the matter was, is, and always will be, that neither this nor any treacle sponge pudding in the history of sponge puddings had ever been light. I had to change the subject. Trouble was, having already covered every inch of the issue with my parents over lunch and then covered it twice more, I couldn't bear to return to the coronavirus. Ding! It was my phone. Who's that, darling? Mum said. Mum, seriously, I haven't even put my hand in my pocket and you're asking me who it... I mean, sorry. You know, it's just, that's what I mean when I say you're a bit nosy sometimes. That's what I'm talking about. I said I'm sorry, darling. I took out my phone. It was a message from Mal. I went to open it. No phones at the table, George. How can you ask me who it is and then tell me I can't have my phone out? I mean, how does that even... We've a very clear rule, haven't we, John? We do, he concurred. And it applies to all of us, not just the young... The young, I protested. Who the fuck are the young? Language, darling, my dad said. Nobody's allowed their mobiles at the table. Very simple. Look, I'm... It's Mal. I just want to check he's all right, that's all. I'm quite sure Mal wouldn't dream of taking his phone out at the dinner table. She wasn't going to stop. Such a lovely chap, Mal, Dad added, uselessly. I went ahead and read Mal's text whilst trying my best to tune out Mum and Dad's admonishment. Hey, bud, you good? All lectures and tutorials cancelled indefinitely. And exams cancelled. Whoop, whoop, he wrote. Fucking get in, I exclaimed aloud, without really meaning to. George Eldridge, Mum shouted. Yes, let's have a few less fucks, shall we, Georgie? Jonathan! Oh, Annie, I, I was just trying to be... As my parents launched themselves aimlessly at one another, I read on, gleefully. Think I'm probably going to go back to London, to be honest. Wait. What? That wasn't part of the plan, I thought. Everything's shutting down here, weird energy. Think Phoebe's planning on bouncing too, but guess you already know that. Hope lunch good, bro. Uh, speak later. Love you. Sure enough, beneath Mal's, there was a text from Phoebe. Hey, baby. Lol, no, condom didn't break, don't worry. And stop being so anxious. Oh, wish, wish, wish we could have had a lion and pancakes. Have you heard about uni shutting? Really strange, super quiet in town too. Is your plan to come back here or stay home for a couple days? If you're staying there, I'm thinking of going back home too. Like, much nicer to be home, no? No, 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 stop, wait, stop saying that. I would not, repeat not, be staying here. I didn't even read the rest of Phoebe's message, but instead immediately launched into a reply. Baby, don't be silly. I'll be back in like literally an hour. Wait there and I'll make you pancakes and we can watch Netflix and just fall asleep. I'm super hungover too. Literally all I want to do in the world right now. Snuggle with you and watch a movie. She replied straight away. 
oh baby shit no i sent this a couple hours ago i already left couldn't remember whether you said you were staying or not so figured i'd just go home too just in case did you read email from uni all pretty scary they're saying for us to isolate at home soon as pos on the train back to london now we'll call you later and we can figure out plans we'll probably only be for a couple days anyway Hope you're having a lovely time with mum and dad. Love you. Kiss. I just sat there, the phone in my hand, bewildered, punch drunk. How was it that in the space of a few hours on a Sunday in March, so much could have changed? And more to the point, how could I not have seen it coming? What did they know that I didn't? Which memo did I miss? I'd blinked, and in that time, my girlfriend and my best friend had upped and left. I thought we had a pact. Stick together. Ride it out. We didn't think it was that serious, did we? Darling, what on earth is wrong with you? My mother was clicking her fingers in front of my eyes over and over again. What? 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 Stop it! I tumbled out of my daze, praying that somehow over lunch I had developed severe narcolepsy and the whole friends deserting me because of the coronavirus thing had been nothing more than a bad dream. I looked down at the phone in my hand, the message from Phoebe open on its screen. I hadn't been dreaming. Darling, are you alright? You sort of, well I don't know, you, you sort of fell asleep. Isn't that right, Johnny? Mum was standing up now. She had her phone in her hand. Dad was clearing away the plates. Must have actually blacked out, I thought. Did I like... What? I said, mumbling. Out like a light, Georgie. Everything okay? Said Dad. Yeah, I... No, a bit annoying, actually. Mal and Phoebes have gone home for a bit. They've shut uni because of corona. Seems a bit stupid, I said. Stupid? Not at all. Better late than never. Should have shut the whole thing down weeks ago. Would have if I were in charge. And clever Phoebe and Mal getting out before the lockdown, Mum said. Lockdown, I said, a lump in my throat. What do you mean, lockdown? He's finally done it. Boris has put us into lockdown. Whole country's shut. Nobody's moving, Dad said, pointing at the radio in the corner on the window ledge. In my trance-like state, I hadn't even registered that it was on, let alone whose voice it was coming over the airwaves. I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home, because the critical thing we must do is stop the disease spreading between households. That is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle. Alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person. And travelling to and from work. But only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. That's all. These are the only reasons you should leave your home. I'd never heard anything like it in my life. No one had. Surely. 
Here was the Prime Minister of England telling everyone that they were no longer permitted to move around, go about their daily lives, behave like they had done all their lives, like they had expected to be able to behave forever. We, none of us, were free agents anymore. For the first time since, well, for the first time ever, maybe. And all because of something nobody could see. Something that no normal person could really understand. To put it simply, Boris Johnson continued, if too many people become seriously unwell at one time, the NHS will be unable to handle it meaning more people are likely to die. His words were black. They suffocated the atmosphere, choking it of all of its air and the room of all of its warmth. Well, thank goodness you're home, darling, Mum said, looking at my horror-stricken face. It was going to be a question of endurance. Stuck was written, read and produced by Sebastian D'Souza. The cover art was designed by Bannister. And it was a One of the Good Guys production.